Silo, a podcast where three sisters recreate the post-movie theater experience. I'm Frankie. I'm Jessie. And this is Annie. Today we're kicking off our series on summer with one of my absolute favorite movies of all time from 1999, The Talented Mr. Ripley, directed by Anthony Mangella, starring Matt Damon, Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kate Blanchett, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Jack Davenport, I mean, the list goes on and on. The Talented Mr. Ripley follows the titular character Tom Ripley, played by Matt Damon. Ripley is hired by a man to travel to Italy to bring back the man's son to work for the family business. The man's son is played by Jude Law. His character is Dickie Greenleaf. He is vacationing long-term in Italy with his girlfriend, Marge, played by Gwyneth Paltrow. Suspenseful, sexy, definitely one of my favorite movies of all time. In terms of summer, I think when I was thinking of this choice, so much more of this movie was set during the summer in my memory. Like so much more of The Talented Mr. Ripley was the beginning part in Manji when Tom Ripley first shows up. When everyone's beautiful and their skin is and their hair is golden from the sun and it's like the most idyllic portion of the movie. <laughs> it's the beginning. Yeah. Let's name names Jude Law. As long as Jude Law is in this movie, that to me in my memory was the movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that scene when Tom Ripley first shows up on the beach at Manji, Jude Law, Dickie Greenleaf says, wow, have you ever seen anyone so white? <laughs> so pale. Do you ever see a guy so white, March? <laughs> Gray, actually. It's just an undercoat. <laughs> Say again? <laughs> you know, a primer. <laughs> it's aged, in my opinion, very well. This depiction of the social climber and how fake so much of this is. Reminded me a lot of stories that come out about grifters, about influencers. This idea of like faking it till you make it. Mm. I remember thinking that he was much more sociopathic or villainous the last time I saw this movie, and now rewatching it, I think he's actually pretty sympathetic in some sense. I mean, he's a murderer. Like <laughs> <laughs> the way that they portray that, though, is I think a little more complicated than just oh, he likes to kill people, right? He's being excluded or bullied, and like yeah, like you're not supposed to sympathize that he's killing people, but I think after the age of like Breaking Bad and The Sopranos. He's like an anti-hero, in a sense. And also, like, the murders are not premeditated. They happen in, like, fits of rage and fits of panic. Except for the last one. Yeah. And that's one that he is deeply troubled by. Yeah, Annie, like, do you disagree? Do you think he's just the villain? I think anti-hero is an apt term here. Yeah. You're kind of rooting for him because you see (laughs) the appeal and... The seduction into high society. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a natural inclination when a story is told first person or mostly from the perspective of one person that you are rooting for them, whether they're good or bad, because that's the lens that you're looking at everything through when it's a movie. You know, you do kind of want him to get away with it. Like, you kind of, I wanted him to stop murdering and just be content. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, and then get away with it from there. Like, I wanted him to redeem himself in some way. Mm -hmm. That never happened. So it makes the ending so effective. You want him to be able to get away with it. The movie doesn't let him, in a sense. Even though he might be able to hide that he murdered these people, he has to give up Tom Ripley. You know, I read the book. So the book is like the first in a series of these things of Thomas Ripley's adventures in murder through Europe. (laughs) So I read this one, and it's told from his perspective. And you definitely get like a very different perspective on him from the movie, but it does have that same anti-hero quality. Like the book's very different. It doesn't have the final murder in it. And he does basically get away. And that's the impression that you get that he's going to go off in the future with his fortune and never get caught, but maybe be anxious and, and paranoid the whole time. Right. I think we have to talk a little bit more about this question of like homosexuality or sexuality in general in this movie. I had forgotten 
that this was like a homoerotic murder thriller (laughs) until the scene when Jude Law takes Matt Damon, well, Dickie Greenleaf takes Tom Ripley down to Naples to the jazz club, and they're singing, and their faces are so close to each other, and then it all came flooding back to me. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He's in love with him. (laughs) Right, right. I had very much been thinking only through the lens before that of, well, he wants his life. Tom Ripley wants to be Dickie Greenleaf. Mm -hmm. He wants to be rich and he wants to have a life of leisure and he wants to have this beautiful summer forever vibe. Yeah. That's when I remembered that a huge part of the story isn't just about his class identity and wanting to shirk that, but it's also his sexual identity and, and coming to terms with who he loves and who he is. And how that's the same kind of journey in this story. The scene in the jazz club is great, but it's also one of the only scenes in the film where you really feel their friendship in a real way, where you really see the chemistry. Otherwise, they're kind of empty. It's a lot of observation, and it raises the question to me, why did they accept Tom Ripley into their lifestyle so easily? Because they didn't seem to particularly like him, which is why, to me, the jazz club stands out as well, not just because there's an eroticism to it, but because they actually genuinely seem like friends. Well, everywhere else, there's a casual cruelty that they all treat each other with, that Tom also brings to the table the first time that he really talks to Dickie Greenleaf. Right. When they first interact, he does an impression of Dickie's father bullying him <laughs> and you know, showing such disdain for his lifestyle. And Dickie loves it and responds really well to that. I think that he plays the part really well when he first comes in because he shows really no part of himself. He makes it entirely about them, and a huge part of these people is just how self-centered they are. He's a chameleon who takes on their characteristics and their qualities, and because they're so narcissistic, they like having that around. I think that tracks with the fact that the only person who sees through Tom in the end is Marge. Mm -hmm. When he shows up and he's mimicking them, he's playing their game, and he's also, like, showing interest in what they like, and he's, like, validating their interests. Like, he is interested in jazz and Italian and how great everything is and how great they are. But he doesn't really do that with Marge in the same way. Like, she's writing her book. It's all focused on Dickie, and Dickie just really eats up that kind of attention. Like, the really erotic scene when Dickie's bathing... And then Tom, like, puts his hand in the bathwater. Yes. If you didn't know murders were going to happen, it would be, like, a very (laughs) sexy scene. Yeah. That's, like, the most overt homoerotic scene in the movie. Dickie, he is responding, but in a way of, like, he purely loves attention, and he wants to be desired and found desirable. He's not really egging it on, but he's also not seeming threatened or, like, turned off by it either well he also knows that he's in complete control yeah. in their relationship and you want to be surrounded by people who make you feel like you're in control and you're powerful which is what tom didn't have as tom but what he was so attracted to in dicky it's not just the money it's everything else that comes along with the money the power the ability to engage with people from that power position that's what tom really wanted that's what he was obsessed with and chasing mm-hmm. but that's what makes the ending so sad oh yeah with peter he and peter are on the boat and you think that he's getting away with it right and that he's going to be able to have a life as tom ripley with his lover who accepts him And because of his own machinations and his own poor choices in the pursuit of connection, wealth, you know, acceptance by the wealthy class in the the early part of the movie, he has dug his own grave. Meredith turns up. Kate Blanchett. Yeah, Kate Blanchett. And she knows him as Dickie. He has no choice if he wants to get away with all of the murders. (laughs) He has to 
kill Peter. They're going to be on the boat for a while, right? So they can't come into contact because then the truth will come out that he has been pretending to be Dickie. And then from there, the truth will come out that he murdered Dickie and, and Freddie. And Tom Ripley goes back to their room on the boat and says, Just tell me some nice things about Tom Ripley. Good things about Tom Ripley. That could take me some time. Tom is talented. Tom is tender. Tom is beautiful. You're such a liar. <laughs> Tom is... Tom is a mystery. Ugh. Uh, Stop. Uh, all of those adjectives that Peter says there are the ones that cycle through the... Like, in the opening credits. Mm-hmm. They are? Yes. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yes. Oh, I love... <laughs> I love a bookend like that. I love it. Love it. Yes. Oh. <laughs> that's so sad. That hurts. So so this raises another question. Is this movie drawing too close of a connection between homosexuality and sociopathy? That this is a murderer? I think the ending of this movie subverts any concerns about that, personally. But it does make me wonder about like this upcoming adaptation that's going to star Andrew Scott. <gasps> yeah, there, Showtime is doing a new adaptation with Andrew Scott playing Tom Ripley. As a TV show? Yeah, as a TV show. <gasps> oh my goodness. Oh, that's going to be Andrew Scott's so good. That's yeah. going to be amazing. And he's he's gay in real life. And I'm I'm curious to see what the nuancing of that would be in this new adaptation. Cuz I think that this movie, especially because of Dickie's response to Tom's affection and attention. It's like Dickie is simultaneously flattered by it, cultivating it because he likes the attention, and then bullying him and basically calling him a creep, right? Like, why are you looking at me like that? What's wrong with you? So in the movie, he doesn't murder anyone because he's gay. He murders them because he's not being accepted. And there are so many levels where he is being rejected by society and by this group of people. And potentially being gay or, you know, bisexual, like, his sexuality is maybe one component of it, but it's certainly not the only component. I felt like in the book, Tom's sexuality was a little bit more, not that his sexuality was more explicit, but that the discussions around his sexuality were more explicit. Like Marge and Dickie both came out and used like the word queer, like accusing Tom of being queer. Wow. Every time that he would kill someone, he had like internal monologue discussion about well what they said isn't true like that's not true right that's not who i am right. and all that stuff and i know that like the author of the book patricia highsmith was gay yeah so i don't know what she necessarily intended but it's definitely something to interrogate as you're watching it right annie what did you think because you said you forgot that like the homoeroticism was even in the movie <laughs> yeah in my memory this movie was all about class Mm. yeah i don't know i felt like the best character in this movie is peter yeah oh yes he's the loveliest person out of anybody (laughs) his sexuality is pretty confirmed yeah in the text of the movie yeah yeah and then all of dickie's responses to like tom's feelings and, you know, Freddie's disdain, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, his disdain for Tom Ripley and his kind of cruelty about his assumptions of Tom's sexuality. Yeah. All of that just made me think less of Dickie and Freddie. Yeah. Even though I was very entertained by Jude Law and Philip Seymour Hoffman, I felt like it was pretty clear that these aren't good guys. <laughs> and right. Whatever thing they're spewing, it's negative and you're not supposed to really support it yeah and because tom is sympathetic right like not to excuse that he murdered people but i think they they show how he's being like degraded and how that is is pushing him to a limit not in a way that excuses his behavior but in a way that does make him sympathetic to us especially i think after the age of like these anti-heroes in television i think we're much more open to those characters and this movie came out in 1999 yeah the year the sopranos premiered yeah Anti-hero, both thrown out into the world. Yep, yep, yep. 
Hmm. Yeah, what was happening in the late 90s? I mean, I guess Bill Clinton, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Right. So this movie is directed by Anthony Mangala. Yep. And this was his follow-up to The English Patient, which he had released in 1996 to all of the acclaim. Mm-hmm. And it has a similar feel. The colors of this movie and the linens, super reminiscent of The English Patient. And... The English Patient's kind of a sad, dark, romantic movie. But that one makes me cry a lot. This one doesn't make me cry at all. <laughs> makes me cringe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't feel any desire to cry at all. Not even at the last scene. Nope. No. 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 So many amazing performances in this film. Because who stands out to you the most? So just to begin, the cast is Matt Damon, 1999. Matt Damon, mm. Jude Law, just like at his peak, just glistening, golden, beautiful. <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow, Kate Blanchett, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm. All pretty young. The energy is great, right? They're all kind of having fun with it. Yeah. It's before they really all became the people we know them to be now, right? It was like they're on the precipice of massive stardom. So I think there's something really magical about this cast and watching them on screen together at that time. But who stands out to you the most? Everyone is so good. To me, it didn't feel like I was watching Philip Seymour Hoffman or Gwyneth Paltrow early in their careers. It felt like this is Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's doing an awesome job with this little role that he has. Like, he's perfectly cast for this blowhard, (laughs) you know, like, red-faced person. (laughs) Yeah, they're just totally consistent and awesome. It's not like watching Daniel Radcliffe in the first Harry Potter movie where you're like, oh, man, this boy's got a lot to learn. (laughs) Okay, he's like 11 in that. I feel like that's a totally different (laughs) ballgame. It's incredible to think about how young they are and, and how they are all in this movie. All of them are fantastic. None of them just fell off the map. Wait, when did Shakespeare in Love happen? When did Good Will Hunting happen? Hadn't both of those already happened? Yeah. Yeah. Before this yeah. movie. Yeah. They had. Yeah. What had Jude Law done before this? Oh, that's a good question. What did Jude Law do? When was Gattaca? This was after Gattaca. Yeah. Ah, so he was a star. Yeah, they were all like young stars on the rise. This is early Philip Seymour Hoffman. Boogie Nights. But he was also the oldest of all of them. He was 32 in this movie. Jude Law was 27. Matt Damon was 29. Wow. I would have thought younger. Mm-hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow was 27. Kate Blanchett was 30. So they're young, but they're not babies. <laughs> yeah. So they're, they're talented. They are relatively self-assured, but it's before they became Matt Damon, you know, mm-hmm. and Gwyneth Paltrow. I think that's kind of the magic of this movie is that they're not nobodies. They're not Daniel Radcliffe and <laughs> <laughs> the Sorcerer's Stone. So you knew them, right? They were known, but it was before they became these massive stars. And I think that's pretty cool. Also, Jack Davenport is fantastic in this movie as Peter. Underrated. Oh, yeah. I love him. I know him as Ed from The Wedding Date. Such a good movie. <laughs> so good. <laughs> you don't know him as Norrington from The Pirates of the Caribbean? Jesse. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> That's not the first thing that comes to mind, no. Matt Damon. This is an interesting role for him, I think, in the context of his career, because he hasn't really played many characters like this since or before. A more villainous role like this. He has an intelligence to him as an actor. And I think Tom Ripley has to be in his head and have like a blank affect. And I think Matt Damon plays that really well. Mm. I can't believe how Jude Law was able to make Matt Damon look like a scrub. (laughs) He really did, yeah. That in itself earned him an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. I swear that that's why he got that nomination, because how did he make Matt Damon look like such a dweeb? (laughs) Right, he really did. It was just Jude Law being Jude Law incredible to watch and that is why for me it's like the first hour of this movie is what i really remember of this movie yeah (laughs) yes it's just the jude law show that i remember (laughs) he's magical like he's gets that balance just right of someone you really don't like in real life 
you know, someone who's very attractive and has had everything handed to them, and yet there's something about them that you kind of gravitate toward. The charm, the ability to just live in the moment that we all in some ways envy. He captures that so well, and he's just beautiful too. But okay, so for me, my favorite performance in this movie is Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, for sure. I agree. And I think Philip Seymour Hoffman has this amazing way where he would get these small roles and he would eat them up. He would just steal the moment. He's also a huge part of what I remember of this movie. And it's the same thing in Boogie Nights. It's the same thing in Punch Drunk Love. It's the same thing in Almost Famous. Famous. Yep. Where he is barely on the screen. He has three or four scenes of the movie, and those are some of the most memorable parts. And Talented Mr. Ripley is up there as one of those where he plays just kind of horrible. You don't want to meet this guy ever, mm-hmm. but you love to watch Philip Seymour Hoffman play him. Freddie is also a low-life, womanizing, rich boy, just like Dickie. Mm-hmm. But Dickie sees what he wants to see. And Freddie doesn't have that veil over his eyes. He's the one who latches on to Tom Ripley as being a problem before anyone. It's not just, you know, that Freddie didn't like that Tom was probably gay or was low class. He could tell that there was a desperation in Tom that was threatening to them. And it turned out to be right. 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 But he was basically saying like, oh, you're so transparent. You're an easy read, aren't you, Tom? He's not being idolized by Tom like Dickie is. He doesn't seem like someone where that happens a lot to him, whereas Dickie seems like someone who's constantly being charmed and fawned over by people and who like easily feeds off of that, whereas Freddie, like he's the life of the party probably, and he's got a lot of connections and doesn't care if people mm-hmm. like him or not. But Dickie needs to be liked, and he needs to be the most well-liked person in the room. Right. That scene when they're like listening to records in the store in Rome and Tom really wants to go out like sightseeing. That was such like a painful scene to watch just because it's like, oh, like Tom is just like a little, like it just wants to be a little nugget and like go sightseeing. And these guys are just like, you know, they don't care about him. Like he's totally disposable to them. Yeah. Right. And even though Marge and Dickie let him in and accept him. That doesn't mean that the broader, uh, you know, wealthy American society people like Freddie will. It's not enough to just have a couple friends because you'll still never fit in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so when he takes on, like Tom Ripley will never fit in. So he takes on Dickie's identity and is able to perform it very well, right? And is is accepted because it's it's not about who you are. It's the name. I thought it was interesting the two people that that do accept Tom for him, whether it's him as Dickie in the case of Meredith or Tom as Tom in the case of Peter. Like they're both people who are a little bit that are very different from Marge and Dickie and Freddie. Like they're distinguishable from them. And I think Meredith, Kate Blanchett's character, who's totally made up for this movie because, like, it was made for Kate Blanchett. Like, Meredith isn't in the oh, book. Wow. She's not in other adaptations. But, you know, she's got this, like, goody two-shoes, like, a little bit offbeat, a little bit different. Like, yeah. you can totally tell that she and Marge would not be best friends, right? <laughs> a little bit more like Tom and that, like, let's go sightseeing. Yep rather than I'm working on a book and I'm living in this small cliffside village in Italy. Like, she's, like, totally embracing her bouginess. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's not trying to adopt this, like, bohemian facade. Right. She's not above it. She's, like, earnest and she's interested. And Peter's the same way. Yeah, like, interesting the the comparison of, like, these are people who are actually comfortable with themselves and they're not trying to pull off some kind of affected show. The truth is that it, well, if you've had money your entire life, even if you despise it, which we do, agreed, you're, you're only truly comfortable around other people who have it and despise it. I know. I've never admitted that to anyone. She's not going to jazz clubs 
Like, she's living in Rome. She's traveling with her parents. She's not, like, running away from them or her responsibility. She and Peter are not hiding themselves. And Marge, I mean, especially, like, Dickie and Freddie, in some ways, just like Tom, are taking on a whole identity in order to mm-hmm. fit into, you know, a culture that they think is better or more suited to them. So for Freddie and, and Dickie, that culture is, like, jazz it'd be like black culture and it's also italian youth culture right and all this stuff that they don't really know all that well and then for tom it's you know these wealthy young americans abroad so it's a flipping of it but they're also taking on this identity they're appropriating like jazz and the italian culture are all things that are not white wasp (laughs) culture in america they're doing something very similar to what tom's doing which is like running away from stuff and like adopting these other kinds of behaviors Yep. But yet they persecute Tom for doing that. Or they, they like label him as a mooch and like a weirdo yes. because he seems to be like very out of place. But they're so confident in that wherever they go, they belong that they don't even see that they're doing something very similar. The, you know, the more I talk about, it, the more it just seems so timely these days with social media and growing, you know, class inequality and all of these stories of grifters and stuff you see in the culture you know the struggle over what is authentic what does it mean to belong to a certain identity or community pretty nuanced i think there's also this sense in tom's character that he feels like he belongs in their world more than they do like he's entitled to it more because he appreciates it more yes Yes. oh man yeah yeah and that makes tom so sympathetic right the fact that you know, it would take wild horses to drag Dickie to the opera. Yes. But, you know, that Tom's always dreamed of going and has to work there in order to see them. Yes, exactly. Right. Or just like, one thing I really related to was the whole, we're not going to take you on the ski trip because we don't have the time or energy to teach you how to ski. Oh, <sighs> yes. How real was that? That was so relatable. <laughs> and it did such a gut punch. That he can't ski. When Dickie finds that out on the boat, and then Dickie's like, you're a lost cause. Yep. yep. This guy doesn't know anything. Mm. Annie, what's your feeling? I feel like you run in these, like, circles a little bit. Yeah. Hoity-toities. <laughs> 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 Annie's rubbed elbows, you know? Yeah. I feel like I've met people like the Philip Seymour Hoffman character. He felt very familiar. Yeah. The fact that they all went to Princeton, I had a very hard opinion on that. I'm like, eh, I probably wouldn't <laughs> like them. I, <don't. laughs> I think I, I connected more to just wanting to be in the Mediterranean in the summer. Uh, yes. I've been walking around in like a jumpsuit and like my big wide brimmed hat being like, I'm walking to Greece today. That's where I am right now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like that first part of the movie is just so summer. That is a huge part of, you know, that echelon. That summer is a verb. Yes, to summer somewhere. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow is just like in a town in Italy with a house to herself, you know, writing a book. So idyllic. Right. And then she gets to sleep with Jude Law while she's doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Seriously. In, in the book, Marge is like, it's not very clear that they're together. And she is also not from the Princeton crowd. She's just from, like, the Midwest, and she's some woman who happens to be living there in the town. So I thought that was really interesting. And Freddie is also not that big of a character. Like, you just see him, like, briefly. You don't really get the sense that he is part of the big rejection experience that Tom gets. Mm -hmm. And Dickie is not into jazz in the book. He's into painting. Oh, which I think is a really smart change from the book to the movie because jazz is so much more, like, music is such a more, like, engaging thing than, like, watching someone paint something. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Says the person who recommended art restoration videos in a previous episode. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, and then there's a French movie from 1960, which is only five years after the book came out, uh, directed by René Clément, and I didn't get a chance to watch it. It's called... Plein Soleil, which is translated as Purple Noon. Tom is much more like overtly heterosexual and there's not really this like ambiguity and he's much more clearly motivated by greed and all this stuff. It's it's less like social and class-based analysis. And the other thing that I thought was interesting was that like I watched some clips of that movie and there are clips 
from that movie that are referenced in this movie. Really? That are not scenes from the book. So the one that stands out to me the most, because I, I thought it was such a great scene in this movie, is when they're all on the boat and Dickie and Marge go below and Freddie and Tom are up top. And then Tom kind of looks down and can see Marge and Dickie having sex. And then Freddie admonishes him. Tommy, how's the peeping? Tommy, how's the peeping? Tommy, 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 Tommy. That scene is in the French adaptation, but it's not in the book. Oh, that's such a good scene, too. I'm glad they did that. Yeah. That's what I like about when there's so much to build on, it becomes part of the story of the story, like part of the canon of the story, even if it's not in the original books. I love that you're referencing within the same adaptation, right? Building on building on what other people have done. That's really cool. That's cool. So I'm excited to see this new adaptation, this new series. Yeah, I think it has a lot of potential for two reasons, I think. First of all, I do think it's just very relevant these days, some of these themes. And two, I think having an actually out gay man play Tom Ripley, I think gives them some interesting space to explore this character. And having like a, a mini series, I don't know if it's going to be an ongoing show, it's probably just a mini series. Having that amount of time to examine this character and these stories will be good too. I love this short series thing. It gives the opportunity, the benefit of time, so that you can really delve into all these aspects in a book or in a series that you can't get to in an hour and a half or two hour movie. Yeah, right, exactly. So what are some of your favorite parts of The Talented Mr. Ripley? I like the murder scene of Dickie on the boat. <laughs> oh, Jesse and I watched this together and Jesse's gasp <laughs> when Jula <laughs> showed his face, the makeup, you know, the blood on the side of his face. Wow, Jesse was very disturbed. <laughs> I don't know if it's bad makeup, bad special effects, or like really good ones, because I don't know what it would look like if you got smacked with an oar on the side of your skull, but it was just like, <laughs> oh, damn, like you're dead. Like you're not coming back from this. You're gone. <laughs> right, right. So I saw an interview with Alison Bechdel raving about these books and the story and how Thomas Ripley is such a good anti-hero that it, it makes you want to kill someone. <laughs> <laughs> but it made me think you couldn't get away with any of this stuff today. Like, there would be no way he could get away with any of these murders. And he was so sloppy when he, uh, he bludgeons Freddy with the bust. Right. I guess he just rinses it off and puts it back there because like, <laughs> the next scene is the Italian cops looking at it. All he had to do was rinse it off. Come on. That makes me wonder, you know, is this adaptation that's coming out with Andrew Scott, is that going to be set now or is it going to be a period piece set in the 50s when the books are set? Oh, good question. Yeah, because how would you get rid of a body now? What would I do with like a 200 pound like Freddy? I don't know. Like I couldn't drag it. Yeah, it was like very weekend at Bernie's, like just <laughs> carrying him around. Like, oh, he's so drunk. He's so drunk. <laughs> so if we were in this movie, like, do you think you would be capable of taking over someone's identity like this? I'm a little concerned with how easily I thought, yes. <laughs> I know. <yeah. laughs> My immediate thought was, yes. Even just on the most basic level, I've gotten some feedback about our podcast in that our voices sound pretty similar. Mm -hmm. And I bet we could like wear something where I could pass for you guys on Zoom without anyone noticing. Oh my God. Yeah. Like, like sister, sister, do a swap. I couldn't think of anyone outside of us where I would be able to pull it off. And then it made me think of how it's kind of like, it could have been like a brotherhood between Dickie and Tom. Yeah. If Dickie hadn't been such a jerk. Yeah. Like that he, they really could have had like a deep friendship and like a brotherhood blossom between them. Yeah. That's why it's successful. They are very similar and he can like take on his mannerisms and he can make himself look like him. Yeah. The opening scene... Mm -hmm. which is actually kind of the last scene and then they right. it's a bookend they bring it up to the front and it's tom ripley sitting by himself do you remember the song that's playing in the opening scene it's actually sinead o'connor 
<laughs> and <laughs> what? <laughs> and Sinead is singing a song called Song for Kane. Oh, oh my god. Brothers. <laughs> brothers. Fascinating. God, there's so many levels to this movie. It's like Tom Ripley, their connection, you know, it's homoerotic, it's brotherly, it's, you know, based in like a class envy. It's so good, you know, and, and I don't think they, they broadcast any of those things too strongly, you know, one over, over the other. It's there's just so many layers to the attraction and repulsion. Yeah, Cain and Abel, that's such a good <laughs> reference. Yeah. The opera that they go to is Eugene Onegin. Oh, yeah. And it's two friends having a duel and one friend kills the other. Yep. Hmm. It's not just rejection, envy, attraction. It's also love, but it's also that he wants to be him. Mm-hmm. And I think that that transition, that journey that they show of him, of Tom Ripley increasingly taking on Dickie's persona, uh, becoming mm-hmm. a part of the milieu, um, becoming more confident, or at least performing it mm-hmm. appropriately, right? Like fitting in to a degree. It was really interesting. So we were talking earlier, you know, Annie said it's really funny that Jude Law makes Matt Damon look like a pasty stretch of nothing. <laughs> Is that what I said? <laughs> that's that's my paraphrasing. Um, and it's true. Like on that beach scene, you're like, oh my God, dude, put a shirt on. This is embarrassing. That's not what I was thinking. But, you know. <laughs> Later, when he pretends to be Dickie and he, Meredith goes back to his apartment with him. Yeah. It, you know, the, the gaze goes to Meredith's gaze and she's kind of looking at him taking his shirt off. Yeah. He looks really good, right? And there's this moment where you can tell that he sees her looking and he then performs a little bit more. Yeah. Preening a little bit under it and then having the upper hand over her. I mean, like we talked about the gaze with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. The gaze is here. Mm. It's a, it's often like a homoerotic gaze. A gay gaze. A gay gaze, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like the scene in the bathtub. Also, when Tom watches Dickie get undressed in the same way that Meredith watches Tom get undressed. They mirror those scenes so closely. And then when Dickie is gazing at Tom dancing in his clothes. Oh my God. Talk about secondhand embarrassment. (laughs) Yeah, that's a dangerous gaze. (laughs) And yet, so even though Dickie obviously recognizes and knows that Tom is attracted to him, he strings him along. Well, even Marge knows that Tom yeah. is attracted to Dickie. Yeah. Because when they're on the boat, she yeah. says, well, you haven't met Peter yet, but I know that you two would really get along. She's basically saying, I can tell that you're gay and you guys should get together. Yeah. Let's talk about Marge really quick. Interesting character. What do we think? Because she's sympathetic, in my opinion, especially at the end when she's the one who knows the truth and no one believes her. Mm-hmm. And yet she's a part of this milieu. And she doesn't really do much, you know, to stop any of it. She has a sides with Tom, right, where they bond and, you know, can be a little conspiratorial, a little friendly, a little sympathetic to Tom. And yet she doesn't stand up for any of the bad behavior. I mean, she doesn't even for herself. Right. You know, when she knows that Dickie sleeps with other women. So how do we think of her character then? Is she Is she sympathetic? not doing anything? Is she a part of the problem? Yes. I wish that she would leave. Yeah. I wish that she wasn't, you know, in love with Dickie, and I wish that she wasn't a part of that crowd. I feel terrible for her. Yeah. She's not only being manipulated by all of that horrible crowd, she's manipulated by Tom, and Tom takes advantage. Yes. Yeah. (gasps) Yeah, it's a good point. Of all of the ways to make her, like, she's insane. And that she's gone mad. And, like, he plays into all of the tropes. And she is the only person who no one will ever listen to. Yes. There's no trick for her to play. There's no game for her to play to have anyone believe her. It's really sad. I think she's a very sad character. Agreed. And it's because she's a woman. It goes back to that quote she says, which I think summarizes so much of the the movie, which is, why do men, when they play, always play killing each other? So even though Tom doesn't fit in, he is still able to, through these games that men play, maneuver himself into a higher position in society. Even Dickie's father, 
leaves all of Dickie's money to Tom because he believes that Dickie was, like, in love with Tom, basically. Yeah. And he understands that they had a specific relationship and yes dickie's father assumes all of these things because tom paints this picture yes and he's trying to honor his son what his son would have wanted and give it to the person that he actually loved right right right. which is like weirdly accepting like (laughs) like (laughs) not what you would really expect well because the difference i think is that you know tom gets the money to do with as he wishes marge is infantilized it's like we'll take care of marge You have right. the money. Like, you right. go off and be independent with the money, but Marge has to be taken care of. Yeah. Right? That whole scene where they, like, pull her back onto the boat. And it's, like, clear that Ugh. clear that she's going to be infantilized, right? And hovered over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Marge definitely sees everything very clearly. The thing with Dickie. It's like the sun shines on you, and it's glorious. And then he forgets you, and it's very, very cold. So I'm learning. When you have his attention, you feel like you're the only person in the world. That's why everybody loves him. I just got goosebumps. That's such a good line. That's the whole thing about Dickie. The whole problem between Dickie and Tom, and Tom can't handle that. And Tom also wants to be that. He wants to be in the sun and be the sun. We've been talking about how Dickie loves attention, but it's really... Dickie's attention that he gives to others that's intoxicating. Yeah. Yes. This like symbiotic relationship where he's giving out all this attention and he's getting the attention back. He's a narcissist. Yeah. Right. right. Exactly. We can sit here and say Tom is all of these things or his behavior is sociopathic because he's murdering people and <laughs> acting cold and acting like cold or detached some of the time, but like honestly. Dickie and Freddie also have a lot of issues. <laughs> and not just that they're bullies, but, like, that that's a lot of narcissism. Yeah. But it's socially acceptable because they're filthy rich. The people of the upper class, they've never experienced desperation. Yeah. And they go around and they can be so destructive to other people, but it's not really affecting them. Yeah. Because Tom is there, it starts to affect them. And it's their little world starts crumbling. Yeah. The person I feel worse for in the whole thing is Peter. I mean, I don't want to say that, like, Dickie and Freddie deserved it, but they were despicable people. Peter was, like, not only was he an innocent, but he was so accepting of the people in his life. Mm-hmm. Well, had he been a Tom Ripley before Tom? Whoa. Because the way that Marge talks about him is that Peter had been a close, close friend of Dickie before. Oh. oh. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. The son had turned away from him. And now they're just friendly. Oh, yeah, I didn't pick up on that. That's amazing. That's really interesting. The last shot of this film always really sits with me. The shot of Tom Ripley sitting alone on the bed with the laying of the boat and then the mirror. Clearly, Annie, you just brought up some amazing references to the Bible and Jesse to the opera, but I think... Just the visual language of this film is really dynamic as well. Miguel is pulling a lot from movies from the 50s and 60s. The use of the mirror is very interesting. So you have the mirror when Tom is dressed in like the outfit of Dickies and like singing and dancing. I think he also looks into the mirror when he first takes on Dickies identity. There's the mirror image where he, they're on the train and Tom kind of leans over and is like putting their faces together in the, the, the window. Oh yeah. So there's a lot of that imagery, which I really enjoyed. But I mean, like what, what else did you think about like cinematography? I thought the, the filming of anytime they were on the sea was beautiful. That panning shot when Tom Ripley's in the boat cradling Dickie's body, just like that pan shot is really good. Yeah. What else stood out to you? Well, I didn't really love the opening mm-hmm. when Tom's still in America. Yeah. It's it's very jazzy. I thought it was kind of clunky. I think it's settled after that. And, and it does make that first part distinct, which I guess is another function. But generally, I really love the editing. Yeah. And the editor of this is one of the greatest film editors of all time, Walter Murch. He was Coppola's editor. So he did The Godfathers. He did Apocalypse Now. And he's Anthony Minghella's editor. So he did The English Patient. And he did this movie. Mm-hmm. It's excellent. Yeah. And then it just makes that first, like, sequence really stand out. Cheesy. Yeah. Like a little tacky. In terms of talking about summer, which is the theme, the the way the camera is used to sweep through Manji, over the beach, in the water, 
the lighting, the natural just sun saturating everything, bouncing off of their blonde hair. <laughs> but also the way that they use the camera beyond that, but like also for the idea of the gaze, right? And how you slowly, you start from Tom's point of view. When Meredith is looking at him, when he's taking his shirt off, it becomes also how other people are viewing Tom as he's pretending to be Dickie. It starts off from Tom's gaze, but eventually becomes how Tom is seeing other people gaze upon him, which is also the case with his interactions with Marge, I think, and Freddie in that last part. Like his perception of how other people are perceiving him as he's pretending to be Dickie. Right. He's watching people watch him. Exactly. The camera does a good job of emulating the anxiety and bringing you into it. Thinking more about the beginning, it's almost like a fractured mirror. Yeah. Oh. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah. Could be like representative of a fractured mind, a fractured personality, a fractured person, a broken person. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I like that. That saves it. That makes me feel bad for calling it tacky. (laughs) I take it back. (laughs) (laughs) Should we do recommendations? Wait, can I ask one thing before we move on to that segment? Sure. Who is delicious in this movie? Jude Law. Jude Law is delicious in this. Like scrumptious, scrumptious. Peak Jude Law in terms of like physical specimen, peak Jude Law in this movie. He's just the tan, the hair, the linens, Mm. the attitude, like everything just delicious for sure. Eat him up. Mm. He's a snack. (laughs) Is that unanimous or do we have dissenting opinions? So I would say he's number one and then number two secondary snack is Peter. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. For sure. Yes. All right, Annie, recommendation. Sorry, we had to get Delicious Corner done. The delicious table. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so for recommendations, I struggled to come up with recommendations for this movie. I don't know many other things that are quite like this movie. Yeah. And I very much associate it with Frankie because I feel like she always made me watch it growing up. <laughs> I really love this movie. <laughs> I'm going to go with another Cain and Abel story, another story that's very summer. It's very much about the location where it is. It's very warm. Uh, I'm currently reading John Steinbeck's East of Eden. Ooh. Mm. And I just watched the trailer for the 1955 East of Eden adaptation with James Dean. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I'm just starting the part uh, that actually gets adapted into the movie. The first 300 and some pages have really nothing to do with the film adaptation. But James Dean looks so good in that. I can't wait to watch that (laughs) after I finish the book. But, you know, it's it's Cain and Abel, it's brothers grappling with the idea of wanting to kill someone, those violent urges, the rejection. And so much of it is about the Salinas Valley in California, very summer. I think also with East of Eden, what I would suggest with Townsend and Mr. Ripley is that they're self-concerned with, like, American identity. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Townsend and Mr. Ripley is about, like, expat identity, but very much, like, young Americans and class divisions. So I think that's a great choice. Jesse, do you know yours? Yeah, I've got two. So the first one is A Place in the Sun with Montgomery Clift, Elizabeth Taylor, and Shelley Winters, which has a similar vibe of like class. There's murder. Surprised me with a very explicit abortion storyline, which you know I love. (laughs) Then my second one is, you know I love cryptocurrency, and there's something called... There's something called BitClout, which is where you can basically buy BitClout, a blockchain-based cryptocurrency based on the popularity and perceived clout of various people. That's so interesting. Well, that sucks. It totally sucks. It's everything that sucks all rolled into one. It's cryptocurrency. It's fake valuation, and it's based off of your perceived valuation as a person? Like, what is this? It's everything I love to hate. That makes me wish, more than I think about it, that the new adaptation of Town to Mr. Ripley is set in the current time. Yeah, because can you imagine if Thomas Ripley also got to take all the valuation of Dickie's bit clout? I don't no, want I can't to. imagine. That's like unimaginable. I don't want to imagine that. <laughs> 
if he takes over his Instagram handle and like applies filters, if he develops a filter to look like Diggy when he takes a photo to post it, like what's happening? What is this world? <laughs> My God. The possibilities. Terrifying. Yeah. All right. Thanks for that nightmare fuel. Yeah. Great recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Frankie, what have you, what have you got for us? There's so many interesting stories these days of like grifters, like people pretending to be something they're not, right? Like Anna Delvey, oh, Elizabeth Holmes. Oh, yes. And people who are who are like faking it till they make it and grifting, like getting money, serious money from people and infiltrating certain parts of society right by by faking so i think like those would be interesting if you're if you like the talented mr Ripley. can i add a recommendation on those lines uh the tv show younger which just concluded its final season it's about a woman who pretends to be younger whoa <laughs> i recommend <laughs> it has sutton foster of bunheads in it <laughs> and hillary duff of hillary duff <laughs> and Mr. Mershka Hargitay, whose name I don't actually know. Interesting. Fine, fine, fine. My actual recommendations, I think, this is more similar to like Annie's recommendation, but I'm going to recommend, if you know me, or if you knew me 15 years ago, this is very on brand, but I'm going to recommend Interview with the Vampire. Oh, true. The movie. Also the book. I like the book, but really the movie, because I think there are a few things it has in common. It's got the homoeroticism. Exactly what Annie was talking about with, you know, a complex, homoerotic, violent relationship. I think it's also very much set in the place where it's set and filmed, New Orleans. So it has great atmosphere. Fantastic cast. You have Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, Kirsten Dunst, um, Antonio Banderas, Christian Slater. I mean, come on. And it's a fun movie. A little twisty. It has vibes. It's just vibes. Like, Talented Mr. Ripley is so, it's just vibes. Summer vibes. Great. Yeah. Remember when we were talking about, like, if you have infinite time, much like a vampire, you become pansexual? Yes, exactly. That's what they just needed, these kids in the talented Mr. Ripley. They needed some time to, like, chill out, accept everything, have all experiences. They're just trying to, like, check those boxes, trying to ski. Like, no, the real experience is in the bathtub. Yeah, if these guys were Gen Z, they'd all be bisexual. Exactly. Then going back to this like idea of the impact of social media and performativity that Jesse's second recommendation got to, I have to recommend Bo Burnham's new special, Inside. It talks about a lot of these things, like identity, self-perception, and how social media and the internet have made it more common, this performativity of identity, the growing divide in class and wealth and, and economic issues. So I, I think it's, it's timely, touches on some of the same themes. So if that was something you liked about Talented Mr. Ripley, Check that out. You'll laugh more at that one. I cried and I laughed. And I did neither of those at Talented Mr. Ripley. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> and that's it for our first episode in our series on summer. Join us next time when we talk about Jaws. If you liked what you heard today, please follow us on Instagram or Twitter at CinemaSilopod. Be sure to check out our website, CinemaSilopod.com, for episode notes and more information. Join us again next time in the silo.